and I settle down. Good morning. Good morning, two people in front. All right, all right. I'm just checking if you're there. Well, my name is Norbert. I'm pastor of Point of Grace Church. If this is your first time, I want to welcome you. Perhaps you can say good morning to the person beside you or give it a smile, give it a wave or anything like that. We always say we are a small church with a big heart and my prayer is that you will experience it today. It's good to see you again. Today I want to talk to you about the story. Now stories reflect our past. Stories also shape our future. That's why we love to read great literature, whether it's poetry or, or a monologue or a fiction or a novel. Because we see ourselves in the stories. We identify with the story. And it always points to a happy ending. That's why we love stories. All stories, by the way, have things in common. All stories, regardless of the genre of the story, it has a hero, it is a villain, it is a victims. But we most likely identify with the hero or sometimes the victims if we carry a lot of pains. But no one identifies with the villain. Anyone here identifies with the villain? No? Other than Joker? I, I would suspect only the serial killers would identify with the villains. But we I usually identify with the hero or the victims. All stories begin with, with the line, once upon a time, you know that it's the story. And then it ends with, and they lived happily ever after. Are you still with me? All right, I'm checking, I'm checking. So the scriptures provide us a meta-narrative, the mother of all stories. It's a one big story with the same things, a hero, a villain, and victims. The Bible starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it end with, ends with Revelation chapter 21, Jesus saying, surely I'm coming soon. What's interesting here is that, or what keeps you at the edge of your seat, are the dangers in between the beginning and the very ending. And this seemingly unchecked rampage of the enemy victimizing people or victimizing the victims, if I may say. And so we're like asking, when is this going to end? Is evil going to continue? Is there any end to all the evil that's happening in the world? L let me say the story of the Bible. So it starts with saying, in the beginning, God created everything that's good. And then suddenly the enemy came to the picture and deceived mankind. And after that, all you see or all you read from the Bible is despair death and chaos and then as you read the bible all along you're you're looking for the hero where's the hero when is he coming and then suddenly in the gospels we have the hero but but this hero is someone who we didn't expect as a hero would be because this hero died jesus died on the cross but then when he ascended to heaven he resurrected from the dead he ascended to heaven he said wait here i'm coming back and so we are left to fend for ourselves. And as we wait, we're enduring because he calls us to endure. So there's a question of endurance here. So you may be asking, is there endurance 
Is it all about endurance? Is it all about suffering in Christian life? Is there an end to these sufferings? Will God vindicate me or give me justice? I think these are legitimate questions. Let me talk to you about authentic faith. If you are contemplating on following Jesus and giving up, this is fine. If you have some doubts, sometimes it's okay. It's perfectly okay. And why would I say that? Because real faith, authentic faith, is a faith that goes through the fire of doubt. See, you cannot just accept to follow Jesus just because the good news of salvation is so good to pass. It's like, do you know that you're going to go to heaven if you believe in Jesus Christ? It's so good. Okay, good. Let me accept that. Or hell is too scary. I don't want to go to hell. Therefore, I would follow Jesus. Real faith, authentic faith, is a faith that you thought of very carefully. It's something that you have constantly been thinking about in your mind. Because this is not just about accepting salvation or avoiding hell. Following Jesus is a choice between having the mark of the beast but having a comfortable life. Or following Jesus but enduring the tribulation. If you must doubt, then doubt. Because after doubt comes authenticity of faith. We are called to have an authentic faith, a faith that is real and meaningful and alive. You, you cannot have faith that's just passed down to you. It's not yours. Faith is something that you have to go through. See, falling in love is easy, but deciding on whether you are going to marry that person is difficult. Faith is marriage, something you have to think about every day of your lives. Am, am I going to live with this guy for the rest of my life? That's, that's AJ asking Marian also. Oh, by the way, we'd like to welcome the new kids, AJ and Marian. All right. See, having an authentic faith is like that. You have, you have to decide whether it's yours or not. Am I going to endure? Can I endure? This is exactly why Jesus said, if anyone wants to build a house, he must pause and think, do I have enough materials? Do I have enough manpower? Do I have time to build this house? This is what Jesus said. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. It's not just a one-time decision. It's an everyday thing, a daily decision that we do to deny ourselves, to pick up the cross, and to follow Jesus. Your questions, if your questions are, do I follow the beast but live a comfortable life? Or do I follow Jesus but be persecuted or endure the suffering? That is a worthy question. And so we ask these questions oftentimes. Let me give you an answer from Revelation 14. We are doing a series in the book of Revelation. Now we are in chapter 14. This is very interesting. Two Sundays ago, we talked about the dragon. Last Sunday, we talked about the beasts. Those are past. We're talking about why should I endure for Christ? And if I'm going to endure, is it worth it? Let me give you the answers to the question. Let me read to you Revelation 14, 1 through 5. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard the voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder. 
the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000, those who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. This passage talks about 144,000 people. Now, what that means is that in spite of the overwhelming odds and the dangers and the rampage and the chaos of the dragon and the beast, there's this 144,000 people who have the mark of God, mark of the lamb, not the mark of the beasts. So not all hope is lost. That's what this is saying. What's interesting here is that John saw 144,000 people. Now, we're not supposed to ask if he can count 144,000 or if his counting is accurate. That's not the point. What's interesting here is that the names of the Father and the Lamb were on their foreheads. Now, this is nothing new because we encountered the 144,000 in chapter 7. That's the past sermons. In chapter 7, what's said there is that John heard about the 144,000. But when he opened his eyes, he did not saw just the tribes of Israel, because when you read chapter 7, and he heard about 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 each, when he opened his eyes, he saw something different. This is what he said in chapter 7. When he opened his eyes, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He did not see just the tribes of Israel or the nation of Israel. He saw people from every tribe, nation, language, Kapampangans, Ilocano, Tagalog. I don't see any Mexicans in here, I'm sorry. And they, they were wearing white robes and singing, salvation belongs to our God. Again, we cannot take this literally. It's, it's a metaphor for the church. The 144,000 is the church. But here in chapter 14, he in, gave, gave us a, a different twist to the story. This 144,000 were, were described as warriors who have not defiled themselves with women. What, what is he doing here? What he's doing is this alluding from a story in the book of Numbers where the nation of Israelites defiled themselves by intermarrying with the Moabites and worshiping idols. That's the defiling of the nation of Israel. And so what John is saying is that the church has not defiled themselves with intermarriage with the enemy or has not defiled themselves with worshiping idols or with worshiping the beast. The 144,000 were blameless, according to John in chapter 14. And they were wearing white robes with palm branches and singing about salvation. Now, this salvation is not because they have escaped death. It's exactly the opposite. Salvation here is because 
they were persecuted, they were murdered, and they were martyred for the sake of Christ. That's the reason for their salvation is because they endured the faith and they held on to their faith up to the very end. They did not love their lives, but for the sake of Christ, they endured. This is the salvation he was talking about. They're called blameless not because they sin, but they are blameless because they're called pure in heart. You remember Jesus in chapter 5 in Matthew, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is what John is trying to say. They are resolved to hold on to their faith, and therefore they died for Christ. They have pure in heart, blameless. If you look closer in verse 3, it says they are redeemed and they have a new song. This is very interesting about the new song. Let me give you an image to work on about this new song. Right after they escaped Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. Right after they crossed the Red Sea, they sang a new song. But what went through there? So experts would say that the part of the Red Sea they crossed was about eight miles wide and 4,000 feet deep. So when all the waters parted, they had to descend to the sea. It's, it's not a flat thing. They had to descend and they have to walk eight miles. So imagine from this place all the way to Sheridan to the east to the University Avenue. That's almost eight miles. That's 7.6 miles. So the Israelites crossed that part of the Red Sea, descending 4,000 feet deep with waters parted on one side and the other, eight miles walk. It's about four hours walk. But here's the thing. When the Israelites were crossing the Red Sea and the, you know, there was dry land, there's on their mind. One is that the wonders that God did, he parted the Red Sea. So they can probably see dead fish all around and, and the waters are held back. But at the same time, they're also worried because they know the Egyptian army is trying to catch up on them. So they are anticipating. They were hurried with their walks. It's not a leisure walk. It's more like fast walking. They're amazed. At the same time, they're worried. But when they finally reached the other end, they were so happy that they burst into a new song, a new song of freedom. See, the four hours walk throughout the Red Sea not, is nothing compared to the 400 years of slavery, of abuse, of murder of their innocent. So they broke into a new song that Moses created for them. So the question is, why a new song? Let me give you a context here. The black slaves, largely from Africa, who worked the southern states and the plantation here in America, beginning from the 1800s, did hard labor in all the plantations in the south, just like the Israelites did in Egypt. And the only consolation of the black slaves was to develop a genre they call the Negro spirituals. When I was in the seminary, I was taught some Negro spiritual hymns. The songs are mainly about lament, about protests, about their despair, because it was their way to endure the suffering in the plantations. So you're familiar with probably songs like um, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Uh, a lot of people have sung this song, or Roll Jordan Roll. Songs have evoked intense emotions about slavery, but also hope. And they sing this, in the hope that they will soon be alleviated from despair and they will be free. 
there's a, a movie about slavery. I'm not sure if you have seen this. It's, uh, it's entitled 12 Years, 12 Years a Slave. And, and in the movie, there was a scene there where the slaves are gathered in the cemetery. They just buried someone because of injustice, and they were singing Roll, Jordan, Roll. The Roll, Jordan, Roll song is about the crossing of the Jordan River and the moment that, George, that John the Baptist has crossed by baptism in the Jordan River, it was an image of hope and freedom. So these black slaves were singing that song to give themselves some respite for their hardships. Very interesting song. Now, years went by, we know that they were emancipated from slavery, and they developed blues and jazz and gospel music. That's why we have them. Uh, you know of, of people who, who, has, who sing good and who are good in this music. So imagine Moses, after 400 years of slavery, imagine the whole nation of Israelites, after 400 years of slavery and persecution, after four hours of crossing the Red Sea, they sang a new song. Let me give you just an ex excerpt of this song, Exodus 15, verse 1 and 2. I don't know the tune, maybe a tune of jazz or a tune of blues, I don't know, but it says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and has become my salvation. Now put whatever tune that you want, but that's the content of the song. It's a new song that they sing, but the song of redemption. When people sing, it's... It's because we're not able to contain our emotions. So we accompany our words with tunes and our imaginations. We sing the songs of redemption because they are too complex for our emotions. So we try to articulate it. We combine beauty and imagination into music. I can only imagine, and I'd like you to imagine, when you see Jesus face to face at the very end, what kind of song will you sing? Have you thought about that? I'm not sure it's going to be Bahay Kubo kahit munti. I'm going to be, it's something more glorious. When you see Jesus face to face, what kind of song are you going to sing? Imagine the intensity of emotions seeing Jesus seated on the throne in Mount Zion with your own two eyes. It's almost impossible to hide it when you're in love. So when you sing, that's why you sing. You're washing dishes, you sing. Doing your chores, you sing. It's impossible to hide when you're in love. Yes? You've been in love, right? You're still in love. L look at your wife or husband beside you. And no, no, it doesn't. I'm very sure Agent and Marion here are still in love. Yes? It's impossible to hide it when you're in love. You will hold hands, you will sing. Singing is the normal expression of, of that emotion that we cannot hide. So I'm thinking one cannot truly sing of forgiveness and redemption if one has not really experienced redemption and forgiveness. It's a thing that you know in your heart. It's just like falling in love. And so before John closes chapter 14, he sees three angels with three distinct messages. Let me begin by reading verse 7. He said with a loud voice, the first angel, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and the worship 
and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is the first message of the first angel that John saw in chapter 14. Now, this message was called the eternal gospel. According to verse 6, the eternal gospel has something to do with the announcement of the coming judgment of God and the call to worship God. The gospel, the gospel is traditionally known to be God has a wonderful plan for your life, but you're a sinner, so therefore Jesus Christ came, he died for you, but if you believe and accept him with your heart, you will be saved. Traditionally, that's how we perceive the, the gospel to be. But, but you see, the gospel is not like that. That is systematic theology. That is what theologians would, would systematize from Genesis to Revelation about the story of the gospel, but that is not the gospel. Let me tell you what the gospel is. The word gospel was first used in the beginning of the first century by the Romans. The Roman emperor who is called the high priest, he's called Pontipus Maximus, he's also called the son of God, Divi Filius, he's also called Augustus or Majesty, he's also called Imperator or Commander-in-Chief, and he's also called Deus, uh, uh, Lord and God. Um, these titles were not used just for formality. These titles were used to give the impression that the Roman emperor is the savior of the world. And so when the Roman emperor goes out of Rome and conquer lands all throughout Europe, Africa, Spain, the Gauls in, in, in France, the Germanic people in Germany, all throughout Pontus Asia in Asia, when the emperor wins a battle, he will send envoys to go back to Rome. That envoy will either be on a horse and, and, he, will not, and he will not rest until he arrives in Rome. And he will announce the good news or what we call the gospel. The original word for the gospel is euangelion. Euangelion has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Originally, it is about the Roman emperor winning victory over all the empires. That is the gospel. And why is it good news? Because to the people of Rome, it means more money, more wealth, more fame, more lands, more slaves, and more decadence. That is why it's the gospel. The gospel simply means good news. It has nothing to do with Jesus. So when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote of the gospels, they wrote the gospels with a different tune, a tune of resistance. What they're saying is that Caesar is not the real savior of the world, Jesus is. Caesar is not the real son of God, Jesus is. Caesar is not the real imperator, Jesus is. Caesar is not the real high priest, Jesus is. The word of the gospel, the message of the gospel is a counter message of resistance. So Christians, so people will have a choice to either follow Caesar and have the mark of the beast or follow Jesus and have the mark of the lamb. This is the first century context. The gospel is not about going to heaven. The gospel is about the story of Jesus Christ, the real savior of the world. Now, what's interesting here is that in the first century, Jesus is presented as the real son of God, the embodiment of Yahweh. 
when a, an emperor dies, he goes through a process that's called apotheosis. Apotheosis is when witnesses come forth and they say, we have seen the dead emperor rise to heaven. That's apotheosis. We know that no emperor, no Roman emperor ascended to heaven, right? There's no record in history of emperor ascending to heaven, but we have in the gospels, Jesus Christ with lots of witnesses ascended to heaven because he's the real son of God. It's not the emperor, it's the son of God. Caesar could not provide that, that fact. Today it's called fake news. Only Jesus can claim to be the son of God. The emperor claims to be the high priest, but we know in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the one who offered himself, his own life on the Roman cross for us. He's the real high priest who offered his blood. What's interesting is that when he offered his blood, his sacrifice, he gave it voluntarily. Now we must remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he told Peter that he could ask the father for 12 legions, so he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying, and then the soldiers came to arrest him. And Peter tried to defend him with a sword. And so Jesus said, Peter, didn't you know that I can ask the Father for 12 legions of angels to defend me at a moment's notice? 12 legions is about 72,000 angels, warriors. But Jesus did not go for that. He voluntarily gave his life. Why? Because he's the real high priest. Pontifex Maximus, high priest. The emperor is presented as the Augustus. Augustus means revered, majesty. If we think about Jesus, he's the real majesty. He's the one who's worth adulation and worship for what he did. Not the Roman emperor. The Roman emperors live a decadent life. Jesus lived a sinless life, devoted to the service and rescue of people. The Roman emperor claims to be the Dominus et Deus, the Lord and God. Domitian had this title for himself. He wanted to elevate himself in the category of Zeus and Jupiter. So he said, I'm now Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. But you see, the real Lord and God is Jesus Christ. After he resurrected from the dead, the disciples could not believe it. Some doubted. And Thomas came late. So Jesus said, hold my hands. Feel the scars. Hold my side. Feel the scar. You know what Thomas said? My Lord and my God. Jesus Christ is the real Lord and God. Not Domitian or any Roman emperor. While Roman Caesar claimed to be the imperator, the supreme ruler, Jesus declares, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is the real commander-in-chief. Joe Biden. Jesus is. His life and death and his resurrection is the gospel. That is the good news. So that means to announce that he resurrected from the dead is good news for us who are dying every minute. Pastor, I'm not dying every minute. Oh, yeah? Yes, you are. We're counting days and minutes. We're dying every minute. That's why we get sick. We're dying every minute. The resurrection of Jesus is the only hope in this life. Because that means he conquered death. 
Now, not one Roman emperor has risen from the dead. You know anyone from history has risen from the dead? Only Jesus Christ can claim that. It's not a rumor. It's true. It's not fake news. It's a fact. Some people might get offended with that. But see, facts don't have emotions. We can say that on a factual basis. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes the gospel of the Roman emperor worthless. The gospel of Jesus Christ is legit. The emperors have come and gone. The Roman Empire collapsed. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus established, will never come to an end. In the first century, towards the fourth century, the Roman emperors have conquered lands and people and slaves. But the real conquest is not about evil people. The real conquest is about the one enemy that we know from the big story, and that is the dragon, Satan, the accuser. That is the real enemy. The enemy is not your wife or your husband. Yes? When you're fighting, that's not the real enemy. The real enemy is the one that influences you to be nasty. Satan is the one who influences all the kings and the tyrants and the traitors and the despots. He's the real enemy. Which means Jesus is the real savior. The Roman emperors claimed to be the sons of Zeus or Jupiter, thereby calling themselves sons of God. But the real son of God is Jesus Christ, who was the real power. And we know from the Gospels, he stopped the storm in the middle of the sea. He walked on water. He multiplied bread. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He forgave sins of all things. No one can forgive sins. Not even emperors can forgive sins. Justices cannot forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. This is the same reason why the Jews executed Jesus for blasphemy. They could not accept that Jesus can forgive sins. In their understanding, a person must go to the temple, offer sacrifice, make the sacrifice offered to God, and then forgiveness must be prayed for. Not even the priest can guarantee forgiveness. Only God can forgive. And yet Jesus in the Bible story forgave many times. Why is that? Because he's the son of God. The other day, I told my three-year-old daughter to pray before we eat dinner. But she said, why? You know, she started asking him why, why, why. So when she said that, I didn't sense any defiance in her voice. I, I sensed some curiosity. So I said, because we need to thank God for our food. And without blinking an eye, she said, who is this guy? At that moment, I knew that all my years in the seminary would not suffice to explain who is God. So I said, you know, I, I think I'm more clever than this guy, th than this girl. So I said, I'll give it a shot. So I said, this guy is Jesus. Yeah, I thought I was smart. But then she said, where is this guy? So I said, He's in heaven. He's higher than the planes that you see. He's in heaven. I don't see him. So I gave up. Imagine the generations of mainland Chinese, the people who lived during the time of the Cultural Revolution in the 70s, or the failed 
Cambodian regime of Pol Pot in the 70s, or the present citizens of North Korea who have been living without the concept of God. Although this, these countries perpetuate a strict dialectical materialism, which science would say there's no God, anything that you cannot see is not true, anything that's spiritual is not true, all that is real is material, dialectical materialism. Although these countries perpetuate this kind of philosophy, if you study their history, their poetry, their music, their literature, I saw the documentary of the Cultural Revolution of China. Oh, by the way, two years ago, they celebrated the 100th year anniversary of the C CCP, the Communist Party of China. But what's interesting is that the founder of CCP, Chairman Mao, at, on the fifth year of his dictatorship, he, people sang in the streets. You can find the documentary on YouTube. People sang in the street as him being the savior of China. And some people would, would give him the credit of being God or divine for his powers. You know what's interesting? King Jong-il, the dead father of, of the present uh, dictator of North Korea, is also ascribed to be divine, the savior of North Korea. See, if people do not believe in God, they will put someone in there in that position to claim divinity, to ascribe divinity, because that's the natural tendency of people. Even if, if people here in the United States would say, we don't believe in God, he's not real, it's not practical to believe in him, but see, there's something that's in our hearts, a higher power that we are looking into, that we ascribe worship to. If not God, then we put ourselves in that position. According to research, there's about 330 million Americans living right now in the United States, and more than 45% have never stepped in a religious institution. This 45% or percentage of, of unbelievers or, or people who have not stepped in a religious institution, they call themselves the religious nuns because they don't believe in God, they have no concept of spirituality, religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Nuns. They have no religion. They're not affiliated to any religion. They don't know or believe in any divine being. None. And the Pew Research Center claims that two out of three of these religious nuns or non-religious nuns come in the ages between 18 to 29. That means the current generation, the, the, the average Joe on the street, the people teaching in public schools, those who are serving in the military, they are the religious nuns. Imagine how you will have to explain to them who God is, the origin of the world, who is Jesus, how he resurrected from the dead, and why we as Christians worship him. It's like explaining to my three-year-old daughter. We have to say thank you. Who is this guy? Jesus. Where is this guy? In heaven, I don't see him. Imagine the difficulty of explaining. But you see, all these theological concepts, all these clever explanations won't matter in the end. Why? Because when the end comes, God will come to judge the world. And the message is very simple. Give him glory and fear him. As simple as that. Give him glory and fear him. The second message of the angel is that Babylon has fallen. 
Babylon is the figure for any kingdom that makes himself at par with God or claims to be God himself, claims to have authority from God, which means, which means Egypt has fallen, Babylon has fallen, Rome has fallen. And if future king, dictator, despot, tyrant will fall, only God's kingdom will come and endure to the end. And you know what's interesting about this one? Is that it's guaranteed. Those who worship the dragon and the beast, those who have the mark of the beast, those who submit to the will of the beast and reject Jesus, according to chapter 14, will drink the wine of God's wrath. Let me read to you verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name. That's why I'm saying that to accept the gospel, to follow Jesus, is not an easy thing. Because to receive the mark of the beast means a comfortable life, no persecution whatsoever. But you will suffer in the end. There will be no rest day and night. They will be tormented with fire and sulfur. But on the other hand, if you follow Jesus and have the mark of the Lamb and the Father... You will be persecuted. It's not a comfortable life. But we will be with Jesus. We will be with him in the kingdom. So make no mistake about it. The gospel, regardless of any clever presentation, is considered by the religious nuns to be bland, irrelevant, nonsensical, and utterly foolish. It doesn't make sense. It's not practical. I don't need it right now. Apostle Paul said, the gospel is an offense. To the, to the Jews. The word that's translated in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is a stumbling block. The gospel is a stumbling block. The English speakers translated this word stumbling block as scandal. Because the original Greek word for that is scandalon. That's where we get the word scandal. So the gospel is a scandal. Why is it a scandal? Because the Jews won't accept a God in human form. That is idolatry much less a defeated Messiah on the cross, you will not be able to convince any Jew or any monotheist like the Muslims that Jesus is God because simply God cannot take human form. Iglesia de Christos won't accept that. Jehovah's Witnesses won't accept that. Any other religions won't accept that because it's a scandal to think that Jesus can take human form. Human form is corrupt, it's evil, it's sinful, and therefore God cannot do that. To the Romans, it's foolishness. Why is it foolishness? It's foolish for someone to claim to be divine and rival the claims of Caesar. Caesar is the Lord and God, Dominus et Deus. Jesus claimed to be Lord and God, so he was executed on the cross. And for the Romans, what Jesus did is pure foolishness. But to us, according to the book of Romans, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This is how God saves people from the dead, 
This is how God rescues people from our sin. The gospel is about the rescue of God. See, the Roman emperor, the Roman emperor, much like Adolf Hitler, dreamt about a thousand-year reign. By the way, the only kingdom throughout all history who endured for 1,000 years and more is the Roman Empire. And so Charlemagne in 800 dreamt about that. He did not succeed. Adolf Hitler or Adolf Hitler dreamt about that. Another 1,000-year reign or the Third Reich didn't happen. And then you will find in the book of Revelation, there's 1,000-year reign of the Messiah, the millennium. Makes you want to think, who is going to endure? Which kingdom is going to endure? Only the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So believe it or not, time will come, people will finally realize that their rejection of Jesus is the real scandal. And their rejection of Jesus is the absolute foolishness. And when they are made to drink the cup of God's wrath, they will understand they made a mistake, a huge mistake. Do you remember when Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, was praying so earnestly not to drink of the cup? His prayer was, Father, would you let allow me this cup to pass from me? He doesn't want to drink the cup, the cup of suffering. It's not just the physical pain that he has in mind, not just the scourging and the nails in his hands that, that he's uh, worried. It's the taste of the wrath of God because of the sin that he will have to bear in his body. It's the same cup that the people who reject Jesus will drink from, the cup of God's wrath. You see, the day of judgment is a picture of harvest. And John was given a vision that in the very end, there will be a huge harvest. And so the third angel, he saw a vision in the sky. And in the sky, he saw a vision of a son of man, a golden crown, and a sharp sickle. See, this is interesting. Whenever you read from the Bible that there's a son of man, it always pertains to Jesus, son of man, or to the people of Israel, son of man. But then you hear about golden crowns. You saw that the 24 elders have golden crowns. But when you combine these words, son of man on the clouds with golden crown in a sickle, you have Jesus Christ ready to judge the world. The sickle is, is in the flag of the USSR, the former Soviet uh, Republic flag. The sharp, the hammer and the sickle is a symbol for communism. It's a symbol that means the joining of the workers of the field, sickle, and the, and the workers of the industry, the hammer. But Jesus holds the sickle in, in Revelation chapter 14 because this is a picture of a great harvest of the grapes. See, traditionally, grapes are harvested. They are put in a pool or a tub, and people are made to stomp on the grapes, all right? That's how you drink grapes and wine before. People stomp, they walk, they run, they sing on the tub. A lot of people, they stomp on the grapes. When John saw this vision of Jesus Christ having the sickle, harvesting the grapes, putting them in the pool on the tub, and crushing the grapes, he gives this metaphor that this will be the people who have the mark of the beast being crushed by the wrath of God. Revelation 14, verse 19 to 20. 
It says, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes, harvest of the earth, and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. The blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is very interesting, but this is a hyperbole for wine process making. What he's saying is that the crushed grapes are like the people receiving the wine, the wrath of God. And the blood that came out of it is as high as the horse's bridle, which is about five feet, as wide as 1,600 stadia. It's the measure of Tyre to the north and Egypt to the south. It's the entire map of Israel. So what he's looking at is the map of Israel, 200 miles of lands, five feet of blood. That's how God will harvest his judgment on the wicked in the last day. It will be devastating. It's wicked. It's scary. Imagine what John received in the vision. The whole country of Israel will be under the blood. And the blood is the symbol of God's judgment for the world. I think it's hard to swallow the fact that when Revelation is talking about people who reject Jesus, who have the mark of the beast, is that these people are the people who live next door. These are the people who are probably our friends and neighbors and maybe loved ones. Maybe these are the neighbors, the loved ones, the friends who are good and kind and generous. Maybe these are your boss, your supervisors. Maybe these are your best friends. They're not really evil but they don't have the mark of the lamb. For convenience, they have the mark of the beast. It's very hard to swallow the fact that they will receive God's wrath in the very end. It's hard to accept that because they haven't decided if Jesus is Lord and God or the Son of God, that no matter how kind and generous and soft-spoken, they are not marked for God. Remember, we're all sinners before God. Sin is not just something that we do or we did. Sin is the condition of the human heart. So no matter how soft-spoken your grandmother, your grandfather, your wife, your husband, your little kid, if he doesn't have the mark of the lamb, then he's not going to be with God. This calls then the urgency to share the good news to them. Are you here with me? The world is not divided by those who have and those who have nots. The world is, is divided by those who say Jesus is Lord and those who follow the beast. The world is divided by those who have the mark of the beast and the mark of the lamb. No one can stay neutral for long. Sooner or later, people will have to choose. And since we don't know the time of our death, nobody knows when you will die. There's an urgency to share the gospel. You see, it's good, like in the beginning I said, it's good to contemplate, to weigh things, sometimes to even doubt, to make your faith more authentic. Even now, you can rethink about your faith. Is it worthy? Is it worth it to wait on Jesus, to hold on to my faith, and suffer the persecution, and endure the suffering of Christ? Or is it better if I just have the mark of the beast and enjoy a comfortable life? Is it worth it to wait on God? See, science may prolong life, 
but it doesn't have the antidote of death. Philosophy may explain life, but it cannot provide the ultimate meaning of life and truth. Religion may point us to the way of God, but only Jesus can unequivocally claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one who can claim it because his life, his death, and his resurrection all proves that he's the real son of God. He's the real high priest. The sacrifice, the high priest who sacrificed his life for the sins of the people. He's the real Lord and God, the God of the universe. And if that doesn't, and if that doesn't seem enough to share the goodness of salvation, tell about what God did to you, how God changed your life, how you are assured that now, when you die right now, there's an assurance that you will go to be with God. I understand. It's, sometimes it's hard to explain the gospel, especially to people who have no concept whatsoever of God. So why not just explain about your faith? Why not explain about your testimony? Explain how God was good to you and you were wrecked before, but God changed your life and is still changing your life right now. We don't have to be theologians to explain this. We just have to be people, human beings, who can share our lives in it. And when you do this, you're declaring that Jesus is your way maker, your promise keeper, your miracle worker. He's light in the darkness. This is the God that we worship and that we sing. You say amen to that. Let's rise. Father, we declare that today you are God and there's no other. The enemy might come and tempt us the enemy might come and offer us things that glitter. The enemy might come and, and offer us the same thing that he offered to Jesus. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you but bow down and worship me. And we will say no to the devil. We will say no to Satan. And we will endure because Jesus is the real son of God, the one who is worthy of our worship. He is our way maker. He's a promise keeper. He's a miracle worker. He's light in the darkness. This is the God that we worship. In Jesus' name we pray.